Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author of that book. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Whit Bodman about his new book, The Poetics of Iblis, Narrative Theology in the Quran, from the Harvard University Press, published in 2011. The Quran is filled with stories, lots and lots of stories. It chronicles the lives of prophets, the stories of believers and non-believers, and lays out the creation of the cosmos. However, the Quran's narrative qualities are often overlooked. Recently, there has been an increasing turn to literary models for approaching scripture by academics, and wit follows along in this pattern. Iblis, as many of you know, was the character who refused to bow to Adam and obeys God's command, and has been associated with Satan from then. Most post-Quranic narratives of Iblis characterize him as the embodiment of evil. However, other texts, especially Sufi literature, describe him as a staunch monotheist who chose to follow the will of God rather than the command of God. In The Poetics of Iblis, Bodman analyzes each of the seven Quranic versions of this story and explains the characteristics of these renderings through various mythic tropes. Thematic intertextuality, audience knowledge repertoire, and structural composition of Quranic chapters all help formulate the meaning of each retelling of the Iblis story. Through a reader-response approach to the literary text of the Quran, Bodman concludes that Iblis ranges from a tragic character to a foil of humanity, with various meanings in between. In our conversation, we discuss the theology of evil in Islam, the relationship between reader and text, the nature of Quranic exegesis, and how some modern authors adapt the Iblis character to comment on contemporary society. Hope you enjoy. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, this morning, I have the pleasure of talking with Whit Bodman uh, about his wonderful new book, The Poetics of Iblis, Narrative Theology in the Quran. Uh, how are you doing, Whit? I'm doing fine. Thanks again for making making time to talk to me. I know we've been trying to set this up for a while, so we appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this is a really interesting book. Uh, you, you're, there's not a lot of done uh, work done on Iblis, and uh, I think what you've done is uh, you've successfully uh, extended what what we know about Iblis and and new ways of approaching not only his character um, but also this idea of, of narratives in the Quran and e- even in scripture more generally so uh, I think you're you're very successful in your uh, in your in your job there um, before we get into kind of some of the specifics of the book I was hoping you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself maybe uh, some of your training or background and some people who might have been influential in in your approach to Islamic studies and to scripture specifically? Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, I came by this work honestly. Uh, I grew up with it. My father, Herb Bodman, taught Islamic history at the University of North Carolina. So I grew up with 
uh, students coming through the house and watching slideshows in our living room and trips to the Middle East. I lived in Beirut as a toddler for a couple years. I uh, don't have much, many memories of that. I learned street Arabic fluently, including a few words that my parents never learned at Princeton. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, I've forgotten those. They could be useful at times. But uh, I also went uh, on a tour through the Middle East, main, mainly Turkey, when I was 17 with my father. So that was always in the in the background and I went into the ministry, uh, went to Duke Divinity School and then went up to Massachusetts and served as a full-time pastor for 12 years. During that time, I was interested in things Middle East and went on a dig in Israel and got asked to be on a National Council of Churches Committee on Muslim-Christian Dialogue. And that kind of got me connected with my roots again. And I started a program at Hartford Seminary in Muslim-Christian Relations, and that gradually led to a doctoral program at Harvard in Islamic Studies and Comparative Religion. Uh, I, I discovered at the end that I was going to have a hard time finding a job because I was more of a generalist, not uh, didn't want to go to a research university, wasn't really qualified for that. And I found that having been a pastor for a dozen years was a liability in the eyes of some um, institutions of higher learning. There was a suspicion that somehow because I had been a pastor, I could not approach comparative religions honestly and fairly. But I did find this job at the Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, which fits very well for me. It pulls on my background as a pastor, but also allows me to do comparative religion in a number of different ways, including theologically. And I do a lot of work with churches, and I see myself as somebody who reads academic work and then puts it in forms to be available to the churches. And I spend a lot of time uh, including this past weekend, going to churches or, in this case, a, a men's retreat and doing a class for 150 men uh, on Islam and Islamic law. And that seems to be – that's my vocation now. Um, I try to keep follow-up with the, uh, the literature and um, enjoy being with the scholars uh, – through the AAR in particular, Scholars of Islamic Studies. and But most of my writing will be more in the direction of uh, the community, uh, especially the church community, but even the wider community. 
Great. I'm, uh, well, I'm glad we, we got this wonderful text out of you before you, you, leave, you leave us then, because uh, it really is a, a good work. Um, how, how did this specific project, the Poetics of Ibiza, how did this project come about? It came about when I was at Hartford Seminary and I came across Peter Aoun's book on Iblis. Uh, and I read that book and found it fascinating. And I wrote a paper for a Quran class on, on Iblis and followed up on Peter Aoun's leads a bit. And when I uh, continued on, I got very interested in the comparison between Iblis as an evil figure who has, uh, there's a minority report on some positive ways to regard Iblis, and the same in Christianity with Judas Iscariot, uh, an evil figure, but there's a whole minority uh, report, a legend, a series of legends about uh, Iblis and why he did what he did, and it parallels in some of the ways what um, uh, what happens uh, in Christianity with Judas. So that was really the my intended dissertation. But as I started working on Iblis, I got stuck in the Quran. And as I cast, cast around for various ways to approach the Iblis stories in the Quran, I finally uh, found Wolfgang Ezer and his work in uh, reader response criticism, and that fascinated me. And so I never got out of the Quran. I started applying this and reading the Iblis stories closely and trying to apply this tool of reader response criticism and its various elements. And that is what turned into this book. And I never got to Judas at all. <laughs> Um, that's a work, I think, that remains in the future. I think it would be a very interesting thing to do. I've done a couple presentations on it, kind of as a preliminary uh, effort, but it's something at some point that I would like to uh, write a bit more and work a bit more on. Um before uh, we kind of get into these these multiple retellings that you that you very closely analyze in the book, um, who who is Iblis? Uh, what what is his story? What is kind of the normal or the normative uh, interpretation of the Iblis story? Uh, for for those people who don't know, maybe you can kind of give us an introduction. Yeah. Iblis is a character that emerges in the in the Quran he's kind of a proto satan proto shaitan and he has one story really that when god created adam formed him from dirt and breathed life into him god commanded all the angels to prostrate to adam and they all did except iblis who refused and the story emerges a little differently in different places it's told seven times and really the thrust of the book is looking at the differences between the seven tellings of the story but the general story is that God questioned Iblis about 
his refusal to prostrate to Adam. And Iblis gives a variety of explanations. He says, uh, I'm better than he is. Uh, he says, I'm made of fly- fire and Adam is made only of dirt. And he also says that he was created before Adam. Uh, God accepts none of these explanations as valid and kicks Iblis out of heaven. And Iblis vows then to be tempters to humanity, to all of Adam's progeny. And then in that guise, it seems, although it's never explicitly said, he becomes a shaitan, the tempter of humanity. Well, that's the essential story. And um, you you talk about how uh, Iblis is often associated with this idea of evil. Um, but uh, you present that there there really is no theology of evil in Islam. Can you can you talk about this idea, this theology of evil? Well, in in Islam, there is a susceptibility of the soul to evil. Um, and the evil comes in the form of the whisperings and the temptations of shaitan. There is no concept of original sin as there is in Christianity. Humanity is, every person is created as a Muslim, as somebody who submits to God. That is our natural disposition. But it is the uh, social situations, it is temptations that ultimately all come from Iblis that leads us astray. And so we have to be uh, warned about this by Muhammad and the prophets and the Quran and pulled back into the uh, the way of submission uh, to God. But the Quran does say in several places that there seems to be built into us a natural susceptibility uh, to this. Uh, We are created, according to the Quran, we're created hasty, impatient, and we're created weak. So part, we're born as Muslims, but there's an implication there also, in fact, a clear statement that we are vulnerable. We are created vulnerable. And it's interesting that in those statements, they're always in the passive tense. So it's never that God creates us weak. It is that we are created weak, and there is no direct agency of God that um, is responsible for our weakness. Um, and this this plays out in the, the various retellings that you, you examine. Um, we can mm-hmm. see the different implications in, in the ways that the, the story is told. Um, so maybe you could... Uh, Maybe you could discuss a little bit about the the approach that you take because I think this is one of the things that that really makes your your work successful um, is this idea of narratology. Uh, can you explain mm-hmm. kind of what what your approach is and and why you think it's effective for studying scripture? Uh, yes. A lot of scripture is composed of stories, and stories have a complex history. 
They start with an idea in the mind of the storyteller, and it is then translated into words. So there is a transition there between the story in the mind of the teller and then what actually comes up in, in comes out in words. Once it's written down, the story becomes independent of the teller, and it then transfers to the reader. And the reader brings to the reading of the text a whole repertoire of experience so that if the text mentions a tree but gives no more detail, the reader will come up with an image of the tree from his or her own experience. So if you're from New England, it may be a maple tree, but if you're from Lebanon, it may be a cedar tree. So the the reader fills in the the gaps in the story with his or her own experience. And, of course, every reader has a different experience to use in that process. So every reader reads the story differently. One can look at a range of uh, possible readings. There are certain readings that are... Uh, impossible. They're not allowed by the story, but the story is um, the story allows for a range of readings. The author manipulates the reader. Uh, the author tries to tell the story in the way sometimes that intentionally intentionally leaves some information out. So if you're writing a murder mystery, you intentionally leave out clues and indications of uh, who the murderer is or misleading information that you put in such a way that a reader is likely to interpret it in one way but finds out at the end in the denouement, that it really should have been read in a different way. So the the writer can be can manipulate the reader that way. There's so there's information that may be intentionally left out, but the writer also has to leave out a lot of detail. There's only so much that you can pack into a story before it becomes dull. And it is particularly in those gaps that the reader inserts uh, him or herself to fill in those gaps. Uh, so that's, that's the main thrust of it. The uh, Ezer talks about the implied reader which is the writer has in mind a particular reader. So the, the writer writes with that reader in mind. And of course, there are other readers that are not in the mind of the writer. So the a writer of a 2nd century or 6th century text does not have a 20th century reader in mind. So, and we bring of course, a very different repertoire to our reading. So one of the things that I try to do that do in one chapter is to imagine what a 7th century reader of the Quran would 
what repertoire they would bring, uh, what understanding of certain terms like the term jin, um, what, what do we understand by that, what are modern interpretations, but more importantly, what can we tell about what that word means to a 7th century uh, Arab reader? Um, I, 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 I want to spend the time on the, uh, on kind of the, the theoretical here, cause you do, you, uh, you spend the first three chapters on this and I think you, you bring up a lot of good questions. So, uh, if we have this notion that, uh, reader meaning is often in relation to the reader or, mm. and into their, their, uh, their repertoire, what, what is, what are the implications for that, uh, in relation to what what the nature of scripture is um and i think you i think you call it a humanist approach to the quran am i right is that what you um, call it? i don't know that i use that term um but um not sure what term i uh, well you 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 say you're approaching the quran uh with the assumption of the veracity of the quran right you take right. you're not taking a critical aspect so if we're if we're taking that approach where we're assuming uh, uh this as a revealed scripture how how does that that uh various spectrum of meaning what does that mean for for our understanding of the nature of scripture i guess that's what i'm trying to ask yeah in in a sense the the approach of narrative narratology or reader response criticism avoids that question uh, because I'm dealing with the text as the text and I, I, I may have to ask something about the intention of the writer but even God has an intention and so I don't have to make a judgment as to whether the author of the Quran is Muhammad or some community or God. Um, there's still an intention that comes into the text. And one might say that if it's God who is the author of the text, then it's really the intended readership is for all time. But that really still doesn't affect the way I approach the text because the real readers are me as a modern person. So there is my unique uh, idiosyncratic reading as a 21st century now um, uh, man, American man, and there's what I can guess about a 7th century reading, and then I have evidence of some other readings of of poets and commentators uh, through history, so I can look at, uh, I, at the very end, I look at some modern readings of the Iblis story, and some of them are very different from a traditional Muslim reading of the text. So I really don't have to make a judgment in in this particular approach about the source of the Quran. And in a way, that's a, that's a help. The reader, the critical approaches don't really figure in here because in this, really the text the text is the text and what i'm dealing with is this artifact of a of a written text um something else that plays a large part in your discussion is this idea of tragedy and uh and you spend a large long section on this and uh, 
course, in Peter Ahn's work, this is in the title. Um, what, so what, what is this idea of tragedy? How, does, uh, how, how is Iblis a tragic figure? Well, this is the, uh, the minority report. And uh, most Muslims do regard and have regarded through history evil uh, Iblis as a an evil figure, but there is this minority reading as a tragic figure, as somebody who is perhaps set up by God, but um, more so one who is a true and honest lover of God, a passionate lover of God, but interprets his love of God as requiring that he not bow down to Adam because Adam is a human being and to prostrate to Adam is to take the the mode of prayer to something that is not God. And so God uh, punishes him for that even though his intent was to act out the purest of monotheism. And so the way it's put in uh, some places is that he disobeyed the command of God in order to obey the will of God, because the will of God, of course, is monotheism, and that no one that we worship, no one but God alone. And Iblis was acting in a very literal and... uh, uh, a very, very literal way upon that uh, that will, uh, which is also a command in a way. And a, a tragic hero is one who acts out of a sense of rightness, but it leads to negative ends. And but the hero. The tragic hero maintains his or her understanding of the right and the noble way to act and to live out his or her life, um, to give in to God. Uh, to this alternate view would be in the mind of the hero a uh, a reduction from what is noble and what is right and what is true. So they get caught in this dilemma um, for which there's no exit. And Iblis, and this is explicit in the, I, I think in the story in the Mathnawi of, of Jalaluddin Rumi, where Iblis talks about his, his love of God and even his willingness to suffer punishment, uh, the punishment of God, and yet maintain this love in the hopes that sometime God will realize, God will restore him, and God will allow recognize his uh, deep and pure love and so that's why he becomes a, a tragic figure there's no way he can give up his love and to worship adam which is what he understands it is to compromise his love of god and yet god is punishing him the god whom he loves is punishing him for the refusal to do this act 
Um, you you explore some other kind of uh, tropes or uh, mythic type typologies mm-hmm. um, in in one chapter you call mythic repertoire. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe you could explain how Iblis falls into some of these kind of pre-existing uh, intertextual themes, I guess you could call them. Uh, yeah. What are what are some of these that Iblis manifests? Well, there there are what I look to is in past um, scripture. Now, the Quran sees itself as in the lineage of the Torah and the Tanakh, the Holy uh, Jewish Scripture, and the New Testament. And so I look into these texts to see how evil is handled in those texts uh, narratively. There are other explanations of evil that are philosophical, um, ethical, but I'm not interested in those because I'm doing a narrative study. And so looking at those particular understandings, uh, those lie in the background. And so I identify a number of these. One is uh, Satan as the uh, heavenly prosecutor, one who acts on behalf of God to test human um, goodness and tempt them to uh, tempt them to uh, take an evil path to stray from the uh, the good path and uh, to prosecute them to accuse them and to see how they stand up in in accusation so there is a heavenly court so to speak and this is particularly prominent of course in the first chapter of the book of Job um, you then have uh, Satan as a purely evil um, opponent of God and uh, this is more a, a New Testament concept. Uh, it's not really ever clear in the in the Old Testament that Satan is independent of God. But in the New Testament, you have the the kingdom of God opposed to the earthly kingdom of Satan, and there there's a cosmic clash here in the. Uh, divine prosecutor, the heavenly prosecutor, Satan is serving a role in the divine court in which God is the judge. So Satan has an office, really, in in this heavenly court that ultimately serves God. You then have a, a third story that comes through Genesis in the sixth chapter, uh, a strange story where the where heavenly watchers uh, come down to are watching over humanity. This is the watcher angels are also mentioned in the first part of the book of the Revelation in the New Testament. Uh, so they're watching over humanity, but they get attracted to human women. And they marry them and they produce progeny. But these progeny are um, are evil figures. They become demonic. And then they ravage the earth. They're set loose upon the earth. So, but the... They come about not through any intentionality. They come about almost by accident. The 
watcher angels marrying the human women do not know that their progeny will become demonic. And so that's a more accidental approach to evil. The most interesting one to me is the sibling rivalry story. Comes through in um, uh, Jacob and Esau, a uh, number of stories, and particularly in the Cain and Abel story. And Cain becomes evil out of a jealousy, but the jealousy has to do with a, a strange incident where his offering is not accepted of God. Abel's is, and there's no explanation at all for why the uh, why Cain's offering is insufficient and not acceptable. There are lots of midrash, uh, legendary material in Christianity and Judaism as to why that might be so. But Cain becomes an evil figure, a jealous figure from the uh, his jealousy of his brother. And so... Uh, so I see these various stories in the background of the um, – it becomes part of the repertoire of coming in, uh, coming into the examination of the Quran. The other one is the fallen angel uh, myth where Satan is uh, an angelic figure who for one reason or another is uh, kicked out of heaven and – uh, uh, comes to earth as a heavenly figure that is rejected. So those are my five tropes, five uh, mythic themes that are already in the background. And when I look at the Iblis story, I have these in the background and see whether each telling of the story seems to draw on one or another of these tropes. Uh, is this a sibling rivalry kind of story? Is it a heavenly prosecutor kind of story? And, uh, and so that becomes a, an analytic tool. Yeah, I think you're, you're very successful with this kind of the, thematic intertextuality, uh, the way you examine this in, in the different retellings. The, the other uh, thing that seems to be significant in relation to uh, how we understand these different retellings is uh, the structure of the the chapters itself. Um, can you can you discuss how, where, or, and when the Iblis story is told in relation to the rest of the chapter? How that uh, retells or gives us new meaning to the story? Um, yeah, in, in each story, I take a uh, different approach. Um, in in one story, for instance, Iblis is identified as a jinn. It only occurs one uh, once, and and sort of kaf. And I ask the question: What would a um, what would a sixth century reader understand by the term jinn. Uh, generally in modern Islam, jinn are looked at as, um, in theology, as, as evil figures, as demons. But there's a, um, but in the, in the tradition, this still survives in some of the folk tradition, uh, jinn are not totally demonic. 
in the Quran, jinn are have the variability of humans. They're spiritual figures, but they have character. They can be good. They can be bad. In Surat al-Jinn, the jinn are listening to the Quran. They're believers. So, so there is this variability in the um, in the nature of jinn. So I go back and read some literature. It's not a whole lot, uh, but some literature on common popular belief about jinn in 6th century, 7th century Arabian society. And there they are terrestrial beings that uh, live out in the wilderness often and have a certain power, and when you go out into the wilderness, you essentially have to make uh, a contract with the jinn in order to go through their territory. And if you don't, then they will bother you and potentially even kill you. But in that um, in that legendary material, there are also lots of stories of of human jinn marriages. And so this lies in the background. Um, occasionally, you will find an Iblis story that hints at a human jinn uh, marriage. And so that lies in the background of the 7th century reader. The jinn is not totally a, uh, an evil character. So you can't say that Iblis is a jinn and just have it mean that Iblis is an evil character. He's uh, a variable character. The other thing you do with uh, Al-Kaf is you talk about uh, Iblis' story being told uh, in the same context of, uh, of the story of Moses and the Kither and the story of Duldar Karnain. Um, what, what, is, what do those pairings, what, what, why is Iblis being told in, in, in that context? What, what does Iblis do in this relation to those stories? Um, the other thing that I, I do in the book is I try to look at the whole surah in, in, um, in order to get some idea of why the Iblis story is here. It, the story's in seven different uh, surahs, and um, and it's told in different contexts. So I draw on another uh, concept, which is the surahs, however they were put together, were assembled for a particular reason. That uh, whether it's Muhammad, some believe, or whether it's God, or whether it was a subsequent community that decided on the particular organization of the Quran, it couldn't have been haphazard. So I have to, in order to understand the function of the Iblis story, which of course has to do with its meaning, I have to look at the entire surah and see if the surah itself has a, a particular role, has a particular theme. Uh, so when I'm reading uh, the Pharaoh story or the um, or the uh, Zikr story, I'm trying to figure out what uh, what this sort of is about. Whoever put it together, what did they have um, in mind 
as to the theme and how does the Iblis story uh, reflect that theme. So I'm reading also, I spend sometimes I think too much time looking at the Surah as a whole and I, I found it very tempting to be caught up in other stories and spend too much time, especially the Moses and Pharaoh story which is a fascinating story and sometime I uh, might do a little bit more with that in in a narrative form um what uh the 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 pairing of of iblis with adam comes up in in several of these retellings Mm -hmm. Um, can can you discuss uh how how these uh the the way that stories are told uh kind of re-examines or represents a new relationship between adam and iblis in each way um yeah um the first place, what I believe is the earliest uh, rendering of the the, uh, Iblis story in Surat al-Hijr, which Angelica Neuvert, who is somebody I draw a great deal, um, and was somebody who encouraged me in this, and I owe a great debt to, uh, she posits the Surat al-Hijr as... um, one of the earlier, as the earliest presentation of the Iblis story. And there I see Iblis and Adam in a sibling rivalry story, primarily. It's the one story where Iblis is not presented as as an evil character. And... It's the one that comes closest to being a a tragic character because the story is that uh, Iblis um, is asked to worship Adam and three times Adam is described as being made of black, dirty, uh, decayed muck and it's uh, uh, that's three times and it's said by uh, by God, by the narrator, narrator, and by Iblis. So it's repeated that Adam is not just made of dirt, but made of muck. Um, so Adam's creation, Adam's nature is put in the worst possible light. And then Iblis is presented there as somebody who, as one who is created before Adam, created of light. And so Iblis is the older child, the older creation of God. And the older of creation of God, who by a right of primogenitor would assume to be more important and to have more privilege, is displaced not only by one who is younger, but also one who is, in a way, at least by composition, despicable. So there's this uh, reversal that happens in the Bible as well, where the younger is given power and more privilege than the older. Uh, is dis- the older one is displaced. So what I argue there is that Iblis has a reasonable argument here. He's making a, a point to God that is a reasonable 
point that I'm better than he is. Uh, I made a fire and he's made of muck. I was born first. Um, I'm a spiritual figure, you might also conclude. And so the fact that I am forced to bow down to this inferior um, character is unfair. It's just not right. And God never refutes that. So that argument stands, but God nevertheless kicks Iblis out of heaven. And the way I interpret Iblis's um, mission after he's been kicked out of heaven, his mission to tempt Adam, is that he's going to prove God wrong. And this is a, a classic, um, tragic uh, narrative that Iblis makes an argument, it's a reasonable argument. God does not um, answer the argument, does not refute it, does not accept it, and punishes Iblis for refusal to obey this command. And so Iblis's mission, and he says this, uh, that I'm going to prove you wrong. Um, I'm going to prove God wrong, that God made the wrong decision here, and then eventually uh, God will restore me because he will see that not only is Adam made of muck, but Adam acts as though he was made of muck. He continually goes astray. He continually um, uh, uh, disobeys God, uh, continually refuses to submit, and he's really not worth the... Um, the prostration, the admiration, the respect that God wants Iblis to give to him. So, and so that's a tragic, it's a sibling rivalry story, and it's a classic tragic story. Um, now, probably the most extended version of the Iblis story is uh, in Surat al-Baqarah, and you, you talk about... Uh, this, you, you, I think you call it a primordial series of events. Um, how, how, does, uh, how does the retelling in Surah al-Baqarah uh, differ? What, and and what, are, what are these new additions to the story? What are the meaning of them? Well, I, um, in a way, the Surah al-Baqarah is the primordial story, and it has really four elements. Uh, the, the first element is that God announces to the angels that he's going to create Iblis, and, uh, and, and they reject this. They complain about this. They react. Why are you going to create somebody who caused corruption and bloodshed on earth? And how they know this is a big question for the commentaries, uh, but they seem to know this. And God says, uh, again, God refuses to answer a reasonable answer. He just says, I know what you do not know. Uh, essentially, shut up and do what I say. Uh, I know more than you do. And then Adam, uh, then God does create Adam. And he goes through this process, um, again, almost a sibling rivalry kind of thing, not quite, uh, where he teaches Adam all the names. And then he sets up this challenge to 
show that Adam knows the names and the angels do not. So uh, Adam is a silent figure in all of this. It's God who is doing all the action here. And uh, so he sets up this contest and rigs it uh, because he's taught Adam the names. He hasn't taught them to the angels. And then finally he shows how ignorant the angels are. Uh, Then you have the Iblis story. And it's really reduced to one verse. So it's as if the Iblis story has to be there because it's been there in the past in the primordial story. And so you can't skip over it. But it's given in only its skeletal form, uh, the basic nub of the story. And then it goes on to the garden story. So in a sense, the uh, the evolution that I track is that in the earliest rendering of the Iblis story in Surat al-Hijr, Iblis is not really an evil character. Uh, he's a tragic character. But then, as the story is retold, he becomes uh, an evil character. And then the story becomes insignificant. And essentially, the int- attention moves from Iblis to Adam. And so in the in Surah al-Baqarah, which is the last, latest of the Iblis story, Iblis is reduced to a, um, a brief element of the story, and all the emphasis is on Adam. Um, so we have uh, this primordial story of with the angels and the names, and then, oh yes, there's the Iblis story here, and then you move to the garden story, which is also given a lot of attention. Uh, and so the evolution is, is that Iblis is an important character and a tragic fact character, a complex character, and then moves to Iblis being an evil uh, character, and then the story loses its importance. So by the time of Surat al-Baqarah, the story isn't important anymore. You can't skip over it, but that's not where the attention is given. It's really the attention is all on Adam there. And yeah, what you do a good job here throughout the book of, of of going back and forth between this this idea of Iblis as a as an actor simply uh, playing a small part and his development as a character. And I think it's a it's a very useful distinction that you make. Um, at the at the end of the book, uh, which I was uh, delighted to see, you you look at several modern. Authors, uh, people like Muhammad Iqbal and Nagib Mahfouz, uh, and a few others. What what are modern authors doing with Iblis, and how how are they interpreting his character? Uh, some, um, what Iqbal does is he Iblis is still an evil character, but in a in a modern way, and so he in his. Uh, Point his analysis of the modern world where people are tempted away from spirituality by all the uh, the wonders of modernity, Iblis becomes the uh, the master of the wonders of modernity, and what I try to point out there is Iblis is still an evil character there, but 
in a, in a way that's far more attractive because these wonders of modernity are things that we all love. And so we all do love in, the things of Iblis there. And so how is Iblis an evil character? And it's not really sorted out there. Uh, I think there are other works of Iqbal, which I think uh, give more information or are worth uh, looking at. Uh, but other authors use Iblis as a as a figure that is useful in a critique of society. And here in um, Genoa Iblis, which is um, Noel Sadoui's wonderful book and complex book, Iblis is uh, a tragic figure. Iblis, in a sense, stands in for um, as a, a very finite representation of women, that women are abused by God, not so much by God himself, but by the human understandings, traditional understandings of God. In a sense, God has to take some responsibility for that as men have interpreted the um, Islam in misogynistic ways, uh, God has refused to correct that. God has allowed that to happen. And she connects that in the Asane Asylum, which is kind of a one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of story, um, uh, critique of society, that in a sense the people who are insane are really the same people, um, the Iblis story is taken as a, a representation of the neglect of God, that God has not done God's duty to ensure or create justice on earth. God has been neglectful. And the very end of the story, in a very powerful image, God finally takes responsibility and apologizes to Iblis and, and cries and the tears fall like coins upon a marble floor. Uh, very strong image. So Iblis gets employed, this minority report of Iblis uh, gets employed as a, an avenue into a critique of God. Uh, not directly, but God has, God is a just figure, but has not done what God ought to do into making sure humanity really understands what uh, the message of God, what submitting to God is. And submitting to God for uh, Nawal Sadawi is a recognition of the full humanity and the full rights uh, and the full beauty of womankind. Yeah, the uh, I, I really enjoyed the the final chapter, and um, and I'm wondering if you could offer your thoughts on this. You don't uh, address this specifically in the book, but I think the the last chapter in particular, and then um, some of the comments you make in the the first few kind of theoretical chapters uh, made me wonder about this idea of uh, of what constitutes. Quranic interpretation or or exegesis, and traditionally we we think of course of tafsir, but but when we're when we're looking at the Quran and we're trying to understand how people have interpreted it, uh, what are your thoughts on 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 how we need to examine this? What what is this idea of, of Quranic interpretation 
consist of in your in your eyes? Well, I think the uh, traditional interpretation is atomistic uh, and collective. In other words, the uh, traditional commentaries approach the the Quran line by line. Uh, they don't look at the whole of the surah. There are some modern. Uh, early modern interpreters who are beginning to do this, and they don't use the narrative tools. They tend to take the Iblis story and all the seven verses, uh, versions and bunch them all together and make one composite Iblis story, and they, com- and they comment on that which, of course, leaves out the kind of thing that I'm trying to do, which is to look at each story as a separate entity and ask, in a sense, why does God tell the story this way here? So I'm trying to introduce this narrative approach as another way of reading the Quran, another tool that has been introduced to us by modern um, uh theoretical um, uh, discourse. And so I think that's a a contribution, something that Muslims can do as well. There's nothing, and this gets back to the first point of whether the Quran is a divine book or not. I think approaching the, the Quran narratively does not, is something that any Muslim can do. In fact, it, it conveys a great respect for the for the Quran, a greater respect, I think, in that uh, you are taking each word and in each rendering of this of uh, the story as uh, with utmost seriousness, so that um, uh, new meanings are teased out of the Quran that really are there. Uh, but I think there's there's a question behind question um, that I've done some thinking about, um, which is, for whom is the Quran written? Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Muslim. Uh, um, Is the Quran susceptible to reading by me? And what is the value of my reading? Um, I can regard myself as somebody who submits to God, uh, who is one of the people of the book. So is my reading of the Quran a valid reading? Uh, could I be in conversation with a Muslim and say, insist that my reading is as worthy as her reading? Uh, so it's uh, am I uh, an interloper uh, into the uh, the Muslim community who has a a right to read and interpret the Quran, whereas I in some way don't. Is so that is the Quran written for Muslims or is it written for the world? Yeah, this is, these are these are good questions. Well, uh, what I, I don't want to take up more of your time. I appreciate you you spending so much and talking about your, your wonderful book. Uh, before I let you go, though, can, can you tell us, uh, you, you mentioned this a little bit, but uh, do you have any specific projects that you are working on now that will be coming out soon? Or um, Yes, I, I do. I have uh, really, I think, three projects. Uh, one is uh, that I do want to write yet another book on the Quran. Um, I want to take Carl Ernst's great advice to approach it chronologically. 
even though we don't have an exact chronology, but he's worked out a pretty good one. And so I want to write an introduction to the Quran, approaching it um, chronologically, mapping it out with uh, Muhammad's uh, life, drawing, it'll be a book directed towards um, the people of the church. And uh, so that's my audience. So I will make some references to uh, biblical ideas in the Hebrew scriptures as well as the New Testament. Uh, And I thought recently that another thing that I would like to do is to include with that some interviews, elements of interviews with some local Muslim uh, imams, uh, people who are very scholarly but um, very – um, were brought up in the West, and so they they have traditional education, tri- traditional Islamic education, but they're also used to talking with uh, non-Muslims and uh, the new generations of of Muslims, and to ask them about certain passages and how they understand them and to include them in in the um in the text yeah this sounds great uh we we definitely look forward to that too i I don't think it would only be valuable to uh kind of the non-academic audience i think we would we would benefit from that greatly so um well thanks again wit for for talking with us um Mention another project that I'm. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. All right, um, and that is uh, legislative. Um, I am working with the Muslim community uh, here in Austin, in the state of Texas, to be prepared for anti-Sharia legislation, and this is uh, turning into a really significant thing. Of uh, I work with some groups that do legislative lobbying and be, are very experienced at that. So what we are doing is doing training sessions for Muslims as to how the legislative process works, how to visit a legislator, how to approach this. And we're going to develop materials uh, for the legislator that I hope can be used in other states. But uh, it's required me to do a lot of work on Islamic law and to try to find the ways in which I can describe it in terms that legislators can understand. Uh, And that's my contribution is I've worked enough with legislators to know how they read things. Um, Muslims generally don't write. They're not used to writing in, in a format that a Texas legislator could understand or that would be really um, convincing to a legislator. And, and, and I hope this will lead to, uh, in various other issues that are not specifically Muslim issues, but are societal issues like environmental issues or immigration issues, that uh, we will also join together and, and work together on that. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I'm sorry I cut you off there because uh, if people are only uh, coming to know you from your book, they obviously would not know you're working on that in, in, important project. But I think uh, that's that's great work. So thank you for doing that as well. Um, so uh, again, to just remind you, this was uh, 
we were talking about Poetics of Iblis, Narrative Theology in the Quran with uh, Professor Witt Bodman. And uh, again, Witt, I thank you very much for your time. And uh, it, it was a great, great text. I, I really appreciate your work. Uh, thank you very much. It was uh, uh, a whole lot of fun to write. I, I was lucky in that I picked a dissertation dissertation topic that at the very end of writing it and even rewriting it for publication, I still enjoyed it. <laughs> those, are, those are the best kind. <laughs> well, thanks again, Witt. Uh, thank you. That was my conversation with Witt Bodman, professor of comparative religion at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary about his wonderful new book, The Poetics of Iblis, Narrative Theology in the Quran, which came out Harvard University Press in 2001. Thanks for listening. 